This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Please take care of yourself. So 214, bienvenidos bitches, buiti binafi, and thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and those who are othered and the victims, because contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cisgender white dudes. What? That's right. These crimes rarely get any public attention. <laughs> oh, how come, Emma? Because the news is racist, allegedly. <laughs> really, Elmo? You know anything about racism? It starts with the R and ends with the racism, right? <laughs> yes, good job, Elmo. Good job. Um, Let's give it up for Elmo. Hip hop air horn. <laughs> and we are Wendy and Beth. That's Elmo. <laughs> <laughs> She's Wendy, a black Latinx woman, and I'm Beth, and I just happen to be white. Oh, listen, y'all. She's one of the good ones. Oh, Emma, <laughs> yes, we love Beth so much. Isn't she great? Oh, yes, Emma love Beth. <laughs> We're not journalists, investigators, Muppets, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. <laughs> Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. <laughs> so, <laughs> who are we talking about today, Beth? <laughs> today we're talking about Michael Hubert Hughes, a serial killer convicted for the murders of four women in California between 1992 and 1993. Mm. Then in July of 2008, he was charged and convicted with killing four additional women and girls after DNA evidence connected him to their murders. But to hear him tell it, he had nothing to do with it. No, he did nothing. <laughs> no. Yeah. So before we get into it, how you going, friend? Well, I had three vaccinations and a filling replaced. So, uh, Whoa, yeah, not great. That's stinks. Oh, friend, Elmo is so sorry, but so happy that you're going to be healthy and your teeth are good. <laughs> yeah, Emma, we are so excited. Beth, I'm so sorry. That is a lot of stuff to happen yeah. in a week. Is I just talked to you in on two Thursday. days, actually. When did all this happen? Oh, um, God. Actually, yesterday, I got the filling replaced yesterday morning. Okay. And then I got the three vaccinations yesterday afternoon. So I felt like shit today. Oh. Yeah. And I'm I, you know, last you. year I got a COVID vaccine and a flu vaccine at the same time, and I was fine. Really? And okay, yeah, nothing. Okay, I had okay. no no side effects, so I was like, I got. Oh, this. I'll throw on a shingles vaccine. Why not? 
And uh, yeah, uh-huh. not a good idea. And that you fucked around and found out. I fucked around and found out. Three yeah. vaccines and a filling is just too much in two days. <laughs> oh, Fran, I'm sorry. Well, then well, these next two days of Thanksgiving and the day after will probably should be, be very welcome for, yeah, for you. Yes. Should be, yes. Rejoicing. And by rejoicing, <laughs> I mean laying in my bed and not yeah. getting out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry about that, friend. I don't know. I just don't know. I'm just so, I'm tired. I hate this time of year in case you didn't notice. What? And I want it all to be over. It will be soon. It'll it be over. It'll be soon. very soon. And then yeah. beat me up, Scotty, because I'm out. <laughs> but he never comes. So anyway, let's get into some listener letters. That's a happy right. part of the show. Well, hello, angels. Thank you. <sighs> I love that sound. What's in that bag? <laughs> Well, I wanted to say thank you to Damon, who left a very nice comment on our website. Oh, yes. Yeah. Thank you, Damon. Yeah, or Damon. I'm Damon. not sure how it's Damon, Damon. I don't know. But I believe it's the same person who also gave us a nice little Kofi donation. Yes, they did. And the tune is coming up. Stay tuned. But Beth has some important words. Yes. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com. Or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Yes. Also, join us on Patreon, where we have literally hundreds of hours of bonus content. And we have a video club for 12 plus patrons where you can interact with us in person. That's right. Um, December, we don't know what we're watching, but stay tuned and uh, or let us know if you have any suggestions. Oh, we, we were going to do uh, Twin Flames, weren't we? Fuck yes. Thank you for reminding <laughs> me. Yeah, we're doing Twin Flames. You guys. <laughs> wow. Yeah, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it later in December. So join us for that. All right. Well, these are your tunes. This one is for Damon. Thank you, Damon. (laughs) He gave a Kofi donation. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you, you, Damon. Uh, Also, we got a lovely letter from Lee. Saying, hello, fruities. As an American currently doing a fellowship in South Africa, I thoroughly enjoyed listening to this case. That was the case we covered last week. Uh, Rosemary. Undlovu. Undlovu, yes. That's right. And Lee said, I just realized I've seen a book about her in the local bookstore. I wonder if it was that book Beth feverishly read through. Uh, and Lee says, now I feel obligated to purchase it because of this podcast. <laughs> Laughing emoji, especially since I visited several of the areas mentioned in this episode. Guantang is pronounced, <clears throat> we got this wrong, so thank you so much. It's pronounced Tang. It actually has a more throaty H sound. Huh. Tang. Tang. Huh. Yes. Beth got it. Didn't she do good, Elmo? <laughs> oh, yes. Really good. And it is an Afrikaans word. Fun fact, Undlovu in Isi Zulu means elephant. And it is also a Zulu clan name. Oh. More 
jams. Thank you. Yeah. And it is widely known here in South Africa that police officers are corrupt. Hmm. Locals have no shame in sharing this tidbit of info. This also may be contributed to why it took so long for Nlovo to get caught. I bet. And Lee said, can't wait to hear the next episode. Signed, Lee and love. We love you, Lee. Thank you so much for that wonderful letter. And um, for the gems, so many gems dropped in that short little message. So we're so grateful. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Well, before we get too deep into this episode, we would like to say that this is a podcast about true crime and people of color, any other marginalized folks. And true crime is difficult to talk and hear about sometimes, and race and other difficult things in society like war, death, rape, oppression, systemic issues can also be difficult to talk about. But it's just part of the world that we live in, and we are global citizens of the human race, and we should all be able to talk about this stuff in a safe space And so we want this to be a safe space where we can have discussions about all of the things. We're all learning all the time. Sometimes we make mistakes, but we just cop to it, learn from it, and keep it moving on our collective quest to be our best sexy selves. Amen? Yeah. Amen. (laughs) Yay, Elmo. I don't know if Elmo's ever going to go away. Sorry. (laughs) Not until I get some sleep anyway. And we welcome our listeners to be a part of the conversation on Facebook or Twitter at Fruit Loops Pod or email us at fruitloopspod at gmail.com. All right. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to get into the story when we come back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.
All right, we're back. Remind us, Beth, who is our subject again? Our subject today is Michael Hubert Hughes, a convicted serial killer who killed at least seven women between 1986 and 1993. He was actually one of at least five active serial killers in Los Angeles at that time, and they claimed the lives of more than 50 young Black women. Mm-mm-mm. So the other serial killers, just two of them that were active at the same time, that had the same nickname of Southside Slayer, I believe Mr. Hughes was also given the nickname of the Southside Slayer. Ivan Hill, I don't think we've covered him, but Chester Turner, I do know that we have. We did, yeah. So Michael Herbert Hughes is a large man. He was six foot two inches and 220 pounds. Yeah. So now we are going to just shed some love and light upon the memories of the victims and also acknowledge the pain and harm that was experienced by their loved ones and community in the wake of all of this murder. And so we just want to lift up these victims' names and remember that this is true crime and it's true for somebody. And so we don't want to forget that. So the victims are Yvonne Coleman, who was 15 years old, Verna Patricia Williams, who was 36, Deanna Marie Wilson, who was 30, Deborah Jackson, a.k.a. Harriet McKinley, 30 years old, Teresa Ballard, 26, Brenda Bradley, 38, and she is apparently the niece of former Los Angeles mayor, Tom Bradley. Yeah. He was, I think, the first black mayor in yes, L.A. Yes, he was. Mm-hmm. Terry Miles, 27. Jamil Jamie Harrington was 29. So rest in power to all of those queens. So now we are going to get into the setting because context and history are important. And if you don't like it, fast forward. Hit it, Beth. <laughs> so the setting is Los Angeles, California. And the murders took place in South Los Angeles and the L.A. suburbs of Englewood and Clover City. Mm. Los Angeles was originally settled by indigenous tribes, including the Chumash and Tongva people, now known as the Gabrielino Tongva tribe. Mm. These indigenous people had a deep, rich history and culture long before white Europeans arrived and attempted to eradicate them. Portuguese sailor Juan Rodriguez Gabriel was the first European to explore the region in 1542. Remember, there was already people there. But it wasn't until 1769 that Gaspar de Portola established a Spanish outpost in the Los Angeles area. The area existed and mattered before white folks ever got there. So let's read Right, that. but that's when white folks got there. <laughs> yeah. But it's just important to acknowledge, I think, that the history we learn is from the history told by white people, by the colonizers, right? Yeah, yeah, from the viewpoint of white people. Right, and there's a lot more to it than that. You're not going to believe this, but they had blinders on and forgot about everybody else involved in the story. (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy. (laughs) So the outpost grew larger in 1781 when a group of 44 settlers of European, African, and Native American backgrounds traveled from northern Mexico to establish a farming village on the banks of the Porcuncula, now known as the Los Angeles River. The Spanish governor named the settlement El Pueblo de Nuestra Señora La Reina de Los Angeles de Porcuncula. Whoa. Or, a.k.a. the town of Our Lady, the Queen of the Angels of Porcuncula. Holy cow. That's a little long. That is very long. (laughs) 
Spanish missions were soon established in the area, but y'all, there were already people there. Yeah. Did anybody yeah. ask permission? No. No. Of not. No. In 1821, Mexico declared its independence from Spain, and all of California fell under Mexican control. But in 1846, the Mexican-American War broke out, and two years later, California was annexed by the United States. In 1881, the Southern Pacific Railroad completed a track into Los Angeles, linking the city with the rest of the United States. Yay! <laughs> um, also, I mean, we just described three wars in two mm-hmm. paragraphs and how this part of the world has been established and become a global superpower. A lot of it is due to violence and theft, and I just don't want people to forget that. Forget it, yeah. So Black people began moving to Los Angeles in large numbers after 1900. For the next 40 years, their numbers doubled. Black people began moving to Los Angeles in large numbers after 1900. For the next 40 years, their numbers doubled every decade, and by 1940, represented slightly more than 4% of the total population. The city was segregated through the use of racially restrictive housing covenants written into property deeds. The banks and insurance companies also enforced them through redlining, which is the practice of denying loans, insurance policies, and other financial services for Black folks. The covenants were declared unconstitutional in 1948, but redlining continued well after. Even to this day. Yeah. So one of the only areas not covered by restricted covenants extended south from downtown Los Angeles along Central Avenue. Called South Central, it was a working class neighborhood for Black Angelinos. The area around Central Avenue was the center of the Black community for generations. In the first half of the 20th century, Central Avenue was notable for world-class music and entertainment. As a principal neighborhood in the civil rights movement, and as the focal point of Black banking and enterprise. I just feel like it's important to say we talk about the civil rights movement that happened in the 60s, but in the history books, you know, again, talking about history from a white lens, you would think that Black people weren't interested in rights before the 1960s. Like they were okay. But but no, they've been fighting for civil rights. Exactly. From the beginning. (laughs) Exactly. So the the black population doubled during the Second World War as the need for workers in the aerospace industry and other wartime jobs caused the United States government to make it illegal for government contractors to discriminate in hiring. The opening of these jobs lured thousands of black folks to Los Angeles in the 1940s. But because of the restrictive covenants, there were very few places where they could live. By 1940, approximately 70% of the Black population of Los Angeles was confined to the Central Avenue corridor. But, I mean, remember, a lot of them came from the South, right? Fleeing intense violence. Right. And persecution and, you know, houses being burned, people being killed. So it might not have been happening to that extent in Los Angeles, but there was still a lot of discrimination that had adverse negative effects on Black people's way of life. Right. This period is known as the heyday of Central Avenue as a jazz district in the West Coast Harlem. Oh, numerous eateries, music venues, and nightclubs opened up, and jazz greats like Billie Holiday, Duke Ellington, Ella Fitzgerald, and Lester Young would stay there when they visited Los Angeles. Hollywood's biggest celebrities like Marilyn Monroe, Rita Hayworth, and Orson Welles would regularly visit the Avenue, capital A. 
<laughs> but overcrowding became the number one issue facing Los Angeles's Black community during this time. The lack of housing and overcrowding made for poor living conditions. In 1948, the court case Shelley versus Kramer rendered the restrictive housing covenants illegal. So everything got better after that, right? No! As the 1950s gave way to the early 1960s, neighborhoods were desegregated and Black people began to buy homes in the white middle-class neighborhoods of South L.A. Gradually, the southern section of Los Angeles from Watts and west towards Inglewood, Inglewood and the Crenshaw District became increasingly Black. At the same time, William Parker became chief of police, and his reign lasted from 1950 to 1966. Parker is infamous for promoting racial profiling and aggressive policing, and also for harassing businesses and patrons along Central Avenue so frequently that his policing methods led to not only breaking up Central Avenue's vibrancy, but the 1965 Watts riots. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those images of the Watts riots are just really hard to watch. Yeah. And it is particularly hard because it's a loop of footage and violence that repeats. This this Mm -hmm. Watts riot history repeats itself. Yeah. Every time the police fuck up and marginalized people respond... This is this is what happens. This is so, what happens. Yeah. Another issue was the California State Highway Commission's campaign to build both the 110 and I-10. By the way, the I-10 is down because it caught fire. Oh, this week. Wow. So, and the I-10 through the heart of South Central Los Angeles. At multiple points, the east-west path of Interstate 10 through Los Angeles County cut through distinct Black and Latino neighborhoods. We don't like that. Elmo don't like that. I know, Elmo. It's terrible. (laughs) The path for the I-10 also cut through a section of West Adams known as Sugar Hill. Sugar Hill was considered one of the most beautifully well-kept Black neighborhoods anywhere in America. Well, it sure sounds nice. Yeah, it does. Across Southern California, freeways that paved over Black and Latino neighborhoods, such as I-5, I-10, and the 110 were completed, while those proposed to cross wider, more affluent areas in Reseda, Laurel Canyon, and Beverly Hills were stopped. Huh? Yeah. Why? I didn't know that. Why did that yeah. happen? Wait a minute. <laughs> Don't people in Beverly Hills need freeways too? So this destructive process of freeway construction through neighborhoods of color not only occurred in Los Angeles, but all over the United States. Issues like highway construction combined with frustration with the LAPD, the brewing unrest of racial inequality and inner city poverty contributed to the outbreak of six days of rioting in Watts in August 1965. The catalyst for the riots occurred on August 11th on a warm night when a highway patrol motorcycle officer pulled over a young man named Marquette Fry for speeding. A large crowd assembled around the officers as they attempted to arrest Fry and the unrest began. Over the next few years, several similar riots occurred across America. Yeah, and I mean, think back to the footage. I we I feel like we were just talking about this particular riot on a video club. And yeah. the footage of what they the police did to this innocent man wasn't it wasn't a typical arrest. No, <laughs> if you know no. what I'm saying. Yeah.
On the morning of August 1, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when Muda all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Following the summer of 1965, Watts and South Central Los Angeles became a hotbed of the civil rights movement. From about 1965 to 1975, the Black Arts Movement in Los Angeles flourished in Southern California. It continued beyond 1975, but economic conditions and public policy in the late 70s and the rise of Reagan in the 80s Mm. led to less funding for the arts and more difficult circumstances for artists and musicians. Economic restructuring in the manufacturing sector and other changes in the economy made jobs scarce. Black unemployment and poverty rates rose through the decade. These conditions contributed to the rise of the crack cocaine economy. Crack offered a quick fix with a high profit margin. Crack was introduced on the South Central streets in the early 1980s and caught on quickly. By the way, Black people were like, we don't have any planes or anything like that. Like, we don't. So, how did the crack get here? The answer is the government. (laughs) (laughs) The crack epidemic gave rise to gang activity and the 80s were a violent time. In the 80s, L.A. averaged about 800 murders a year, more than half of them in South Central. The violence peaked around the time of the L.A. riots in 1992, a year when the city recorded more than 1,000 homicides. Yeah, you know where they don't have homicides and people and crime? in like white neighborhoods that have all the resources that they need and are not over-policed. Isn't that interesting? Very interesting. So anyway, since the early 1980s, at least five serial killers and possibly more were active in the South Los Angeles area. 
These killers targeted mostly young Black women, and more than 50 bodies were found during this time. Most of the victims' bodies were dumped outside and found by passerby. Many had been strangled or shot. Others were stabbed. Their bodies were dumped in alleys, vacant buildings and parks, wrapped in filthy rugs, under piles of junk, and in garbage bins. It's just... It, that makes me really, really sad. Sad. The fact yeah. that most of these bodies were women of color and literally and dumped like dumped trash. like garbage. Yeah. Yeah. At first, police believed there was one prolific, unidentified serial killer targeting vulnerable women on the streets, and he was dubbed the Southside Slayer. Now, remember that for a long time, the prevailing theory was that serial killers are smart, clever, and cunning. So I don't know. I don't even know if they considered at the time at first that it could have been a black person. Yeah. But investigators later discovered that at least five serial killers were at work, including Lonnie Franklin Jr., a.k.a. the Grim Sleeper, Ivan Hill, Chester Turner, Lewis Crane, and our subject today, Michael Hubert Hughes. It was difficult finding information about the victims in this story. I like to try to get as much information on the victims as I can. But there just wasn't a whole lot out there. Actually, this whole case was difficult to find information on. Mm -hmm. Michael Hughes is just not as well known as, say, the Grim Sleeper Chester Turner. Right. And that also means that the victims are less well known um, and there's not that much information. So if any fruities out there listening have any information or can shed some additional light on the humanity of the victims, please share with us. You know where to find us. Yeah. (laughs) So now we're going to get into the early life of Michael. What do you got, Beth? Michael Hubert Hughes was born in Michigan. His year of birth has been listed in various articles ranging from 1956 to 1958, but it's probably 56 or 57, just based on how old he is today. Okay. Okay. According to his later defense attorney, his mother was 15 when Michael was born and she was mentally unstable. Mm, Okay. According to Michael, his parents divorced when he was about five years old. His mother then met another man who eventually became Michael's stepfather. Michael's mother took him and his sister to live in California in order to be closer to his stepfather's family. But that meant being far away from his own family and his father in Michigan. According to Michael, his mother was physically and emotionally abusive towards both Michael and his sister, but especially towards him. And he thinks possibly because he looked like his father. His later defense attorney alleged that Michael had witnessed his mother perform a forced abortion on his sister. And also per Michael, he was hospitalized twice for nervous breakdowns as a child. Yeah, I heard that too in that interview. And uh, let's move on. According to (laughs) Michael, his stepfather left his mother because she was abusive towards him as well. He described his biological father as a kind man and opined that his life would have been very different had he been raised by his father. Michael is obviously very angry towards his mother. Yeah. But whether this is fair or not is a different story. Right. A lot of serial killers harbor anger towards their mothers and blame them for all their problems. Mm. Mothers tend to be the primary caregiver. Mm -hmm. And often when the family breaks up, mom sticks around and dad does not. Yeah. So it's easy to blame mom. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, She may have been abusive. Maybe. She could have been. She could have been wonderful, too. Yeah. (laughs) I tend to think that he's exaggerating. Mm. And I always give claims from serial killers the side eye. You know, did this really happen? Yeah. 
Yeah. Especially this story because there was no corroborating evidence. And the story about his mom giving his sister a forced abortion. I don't know. Could have happened, but you know. He's the only one who said He's the only one who's saying it happened. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, thank you for saying all of that, OG of True Crime. We appreciate your knowledge so much. Mm -hmm. Um, In any case, after graduating from high school at the age of 17, Michael joined the Navy. He (laughs) said to get away from his mother. He worked in the armory and then as a machinist. After he left the Navy, he worked for Hughes Aircraft in Culver City, but he was let go. Police said he spent some time in jail for drug offenses, theft, and perjury. And he had a history of violence and sexual attacks but I couldn't find information about what the exact charges were. Hmm. He bounced around from job to job. Some of the jobs that he held, including working as a security guard, working for a moving company, and selling Christmas trees at a tree lot near the airport. Whatever it takes. Yeah. So he had difficulty holding down a job because he had turned to alcohol and drugs. Sometimes he lived on the streets and sold drugs to get by. He claimed to have a lot of friends in the same situation that he was in and that they hung out on the streets all together. So, hey, Emma, what do you think about getting into the timeline? Oh, yes. I'm sorry. This might be annoying to new listeners. I'll stop. At least for now. Let's get into the timeline. (laughs) Splish splash. On January 22nd, 1986, 15-year-old Yvonne Coleman was murdered. Yvonne was a student at Morningside High School in Inglewood, but she had skipped school that day to hang out with her boyfriend. (gasps) One day. One day she skipped school. Poor thing. Yvonne was on her way home when she was assaulted. A water treatment plant inspector found her body in Inglewood Park near a barbecue pit, just a few blocks from where Hugh's mother lived. She had been raped, sodomized, and suffocated, with her face pressed into the ground. Grass was found in her mouth and throat. Oh, she was a baby. Yeah. Five months later, on May 26th, 1986, the partially nude body of Verna Williams, a 36-year-old black woman, was discovered in a stairwell on 68th Street Elementary School by two students. She had been strangled to death. Then there is a four-year lull in killings linked to Hughes, which ended on August 30th, 1990, when Deanna Marie Wilson was raped and strangled to death inside of her garage while her young son was asleep in a nearby bedroom. Her body was found by a friend. Hughes was known to frequent the King's Castle Motel, about half a mile from the murder scene. On September 23, 1992, Teresa Ballard, a 27-year-old black woman, was found dead in Jesse Owens Park. Her body was partially clothed. On October 5th, 1992, the body of Brenda Bradley, a 38-year-old black woman, was found partially clothed in an alley in Culver City. Brenda's uncle, Tom Bradley, was the mayor of Los Angeles from 1973 to 1993. He was the first black mayor of Los Angeles. And I got to say, sometimes in the black community, there are those of us who transcend the stereotypes, who make it to prominent positions who have a certain amount of wealth and education and privilege. And many of us who get to those places believe that our efforts and the status that we have reached should protect us from violence by the state or other tragic things that might statistically happen to a BIPOC person. 
but really nobody's safe. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. all <laughs> they're, they're, just because you're an exception doesn't mean you are immune from harm, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So anyway, just wanted to mention that. Well, that's a cheery thought. Oh, I'm sorry. I really bring it. That's why I brought my friend Elmo to come pick things up. But Elmo, sit down over there. So um, I was actually surprised that I couldn't find more information about Brenda. That since is she's odd. The mm-hmm. niece of Tom Bradley. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I looked. I I just couldn't find anything. Yeah, I mean Beth can find anything. Well, is it I don't on know the internet? About that, but Beth's got it. <laughs> Nobody is safe with Beth on the case. And so it is it is really wild to me that you that and, and somebody like this with their name linked, their family heritage linked to this historical figure in American history. First right. black mayor of Los Angeles is a big deal. I would think everybody yeah. who's related to him is somewhere on the Wikipedia page, but uh no. But yeah. Thanks for trying, Beth. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> On June 25th, 1993, Deborah Jackson, 30, was found dead near a container outside of a paint store in Mid-Wilshire. At the time, Hughes was working for a moving company called Starving Students, Oh, located within two blocks of where Jackson was found. You know, sometimes these names of these moving companies, I just want to call them just to see what shows up. Starving Students? What is, <laughs> what's another one? There's 1-800-got-junk, like, but there's also the moving college students, two guys and a bag. Oh, yeah. Like they yeah. always, these moving companies. Two guys have, in a truck. Yeah. Two guys in a truck. Yes. Thank you. Always have interesting names. Yeah. Anyway, on November 8th, 1993, Terry Miles, a 27 year old black woman was found murdered and her body left in Jesse Owens Park. Six days later on November 14th, 1993, Jamie Harrington, a 29 year old white woman, was found strangled to death and her body dumped in an alley behind Washington Boulevard. All right, so now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. So in December of 1993, Hughes was identified as a suspect in the murders of Teresa Ballard, Brenda Bradley, Terry Miles, and Jamie Harrington. At the time, he was on parole for a drug conviction, and police said that he had a history of violence and sexual attacks. The murders of Yvonne Coleman, Verna Williams, Deborah Jackson, and Deanna Wilson were not linked to Hughes at this time. On December 10th, the media broadcast that the police were looking for him. Later that day, after residents in Culver City notified the police of his whereabouts, Hughes was picked up for questioning without incident. A couple of articles allege that he was arrested while pushing a shopping cart with a body tied to it. No! But uh, this does not appear to be true. That's just lore. Yeah, which I was like, oh, there's a body in a shopping cart. I got Whoa. all excited because I'm a sick fuck. But yeah, uh, yeah we all true. are. We all are a little sick inside. Yes. Uh, so if you're alive in 2023, we're all a little, a little, a little woo. sick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Hughes was questioned throughout the night and then arrested for the murders the very next day. When Hughes was arrested in 1993, his case got little attention. Remember what's going on in L.A. in 1993? This is post-L.A. riot time. So according to police, Hughes' signature stood out to them, though. All of the women's bodies were found in public places, at least half naked, and posed in an explicit manner, most likely in an attempt to degrade the victim and shock the passerby who found them.
introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Now let's get into the trial. What the what, Beth? Hughes pleaded not guilty, but in 1998, he was convicted of first-degree murder in the deaths of Teresa Ballard, Brenda Bradley, Terry Miles, and Jamie Harrington. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The murders of Yvonne Coleman, Verna Williams, Deborah Jackson, and Deanna Wilson remained unsolved. Then, in 2004, Hughes was identified as a suspect through a DNA cold hit, which is a connection between a crime scene and a perpetrator that's made without an investigative lead. DNA! <laughs> DNA does it again. I know. I just imagine myself at like like DNA's on stage at concert, and I'm I'm like on Beth's like, shoulders, woo! and I'm like flashing. <laughs> DNA, woo! That's how much I love DNA. <laughs> Cold case detectives then spent years poring over old evidence, trying to retrace Hughes's footsteps and building on the forensic evidence. Hughes was already in jail, so they had time. They reconstructed events surrounding each killing, interviewing relatives of the victims, witnesses who found the bodies, and the original investigators. During the investigation, detectives visited Hughes twice in Kern Valley State Prison. But Hughes was no help. You're not going to believe this. He's useless. <laughs> he insisted that he never <laughs> killed anyone. Huh? <laughs> On July 3rd, 2008, Hughes was charged with the murders of Yvonne Coleman, Verna Williams, Deanna Wilson, and Deborah Jackson. The charge for Deanna Wilson's murder was later dropped. We don't know why. Maybe they didn't have as good of a case with her murder. Hmm. But Hughes remains the main suspect. Then on November 3rd, 2011, Hughes was convicted of murder. The jurors also found Hughes guilty of special circumstances. They were that Hughes had a prior murder conviction. Ooh, not every judge would let that in. Yeah. So that he committed multiple murders and that Yvonne had been raped and sodomized. Wow. Hughes's defense attorney argued that his early life circumstances should be taken into account when considering punishment, to which Deborah Jackson's sister Adele McKinley, who said she was sexually molested until she turned 12, said, quote, I'm not a serial killer. That's his choice, unquote. Um, I'm going to just go out on a limb here and say bars um, <laughs> because that's a word. Uh, yeah. So Jackie McFarlane, Teresa Ballard's mother, said, quote, everyone in here has been through something as a child, unquote. That's that's. Yeah. Yeah. Yvonne Coleman's mother, Linda, told the judge that, quote, there will never be an equitable amount of justice served, unquote but requested the maximum penalty. Jurors rejected the plea for Hughes to be shown leniency because of an abusive childhood. The jury four-woman later said that the seven-man, five-woman panel 
wasn't swayed by the argument. Quote, we just thought the crimes were so egregious, we couldn't give the minimum time, unquote. The jury recommended that he get the death penalty. And on June 22, 2012, Hughes was sentenced to death. A number of the victim's family members were on hand as the sentence was handed down. Deanna Wilson's sister, Debbie Sally, called Hughes a monster and said, quote, death is what he deserves, unquote. Adele McKinley said, quote, it brings some closure in the fact that my sister has been vindicated and justice has been served, unquote. Detectives believe that Hughes, who moved frequently throughout his life, traveling with the Navy and living in Long Beach, San Diego, and Michigan, could be linked to other murders beyond the Los Angeles area. So now let's get into where are they now? Tell us, Beth. Well, Hughes is 67 years old and is still on death row at San Quentin State Prison. Hmm. He still claims innocence. He doesn't deny knowing or having sex with some of the women, but he does deny killing them. He says that he suspects that it was one of his friends Uh that he hung out with on the streets that committed the murders. But uh, I wonder if these friends even existed. Oh, Michael has imaginary friends, too? (laughs) Yeah, Emma, isn't that weird? Oh, wow. This guy sounds like a crazy motherfucker. (laughs) Yeah, you know what, Emma? I thought the same thing. Now, Emma, let's ask Beth what she thinks about this case and what she thinks made Michael Huber Hughes snap. So uh, the usual suspects, a shitty childhood, racism, the climate in South L.A. during the 80s and early 90s, which was very violent and obviously ripe for serial killers. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Other than that, I don't really know because there's not much info out there about him and he's not admitting to killing anyone. Yeah. And his stories sound like bullshit to me. So I can't really, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I listened to that interview, too, and it was just yeah. a lot of nonsense and nothing. Yeah, and I would love to hear his sister's side of the story. Yeah. What was their childhood really like? Um, yeah. Maybe it was abusive. I don't know, but I would like to hear her side. Yeah, and you know what? I, this just occurred to me because the first black mayor, his niece is one of the victims. Right. And we don't know anything about her. And I nope. wonder if there was some, you know how, like, Back in the day when Prince was alive, any videos of Prince on the internet that were not approved by him were like scrubbed immediately. Same with Beyonce videos. Yeah. Didn't know that. Her team calls to take them down. Yeah. And so I wonder if there was some sort of effort to preserve his legacy that makes it it possible for us to find any information about the victims because it would have connected the niece to him. And maybe in some way, maybe reflected negatively on his legacy. A lot of the women who were killed were sex workers. So mm-hmm. she may mm-hmm. have been a sex worker. She may have been doing crack. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's very possible. Just a thought I had. I don't know. I have no evidence. I'm just a dumb podcaster. But <laughs> yes, uh, Deborah Jackson, the sister, said it perfectly. This was a choice. His circumstances may have been an explanation, but certainly not an excuse. Yeah. And I too wish we knew more about the victims. And it sounds like at least to him, to hear him tell it. Not having access to his father was traumatic for him. Moving out of state was traumatic for him. And according to him, his mom was awful, abusive to him. And he suggested that she took his anger out on him. And it seems to me that, even though he doesn't admit it, that he took out his hatred for the motherly figure who hurt him, took that out on the women um, that he encountered. 
And, you know, he wanted them to suffer even beyond like death by yeah. how we position them in such a public right. way, just more shame for them and their memories. But to hear him tell it, he knew the women, they had sex together, they did drugs, but they all looked out for each other. And he has no idea who killed him <laughs> or yeah. that it was one of his friends. It's just crazy. Right. And yeah. I was just curious. Another thought I had was about his military service. And I we got to talk to Mama Margo about this. The stats for known serial killers and military service. And, like, yeah. is it 90%? Is it 80? Is it 100? I don't know. <laughs> but I'm very curious. It's not 100, but no. I would guess that it's at least 50. That's a lot. Yeah, I don't it know. is a lot. Yeah. yeah. That's I mean, just a guess. I'm just if, throwing that out there. Yeah. Okay. I, and because you're the OG of true crime, I'm just going to take it as true fact. <laughs> Gospel. And I don't have any more questions. So now, let's get into, let us know what you thought. You know where to find us. Let's get into how not to get murdered. <clears throat> All right. If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. So we got a listener tip, y'all. This yeah. is from our listener, Tammy, who said, hey, Wendy and Beth, listen, I thought I knew everything about how not to get murdered until I visited my sister. One night, we were leaving an office building and had to walk across the parking lot to our car. Once we got on the sidewalk, my sister started waving. She was trying to get somebody's attention. <laughs> what the hell are you doing? Who are you waving at? We are the only ones out here. Were a few of the many rapid questions I asked her. Oh, she said, whenever I'm coming out by myself or at night, I pretend I'm waving to someone in the car. So it doesn't look like I'm alone. Okay, well, that's genius. <laughs> yeah. uh, you better believe I'm going to be waving to my imaginary friend from now on. Yeah. Lane. And that. Good one. That is an amazing tip. Thank you so yeah, much, Tammy. Yes. <laughs> Anything to add, Beth? Nope. I mean, that was so good. I'm sweating. Yeah. Now it's, time, <laughs> it's time to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by or about people of color or any other marginalized folks. Or any true crime goodies. I, today, have a true crime goodie. Okay. And it's a podcast that I've been listening to, like, before bed. So it's one of those, I enjoy it. I don't have too much to say about it. But let me tell you what the description is. Okay. It's called The Opportunist. And it's a podcast that tells true stories of regular people who turn sinister oh, no. by embracing opportunity. Ooh. And it's hosted by Hannah Smith. And it's wherever you get your podcast. Subscribing right now. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoy right. it. Yeah. What do you got? I wanted to shout out a show on Netflix called The Railway Men. The oh, Untold this is in story my queue. Of, Sorry. The, the Untold Story of Bhopal 1984. Yeah. So the story is in 1984, a cloud of toxic gas escaped from an American pesticide plant in the central Indian city of Bhopal. It killed and injured thousands of people, like 15,000 people. No. Yeah. Whoa. And the protagonists of the railway men are workers at the Bhopal railway station who saved thousands of lives. So this is <gasps> something I have never heard of before. And it killed 15,000 people. That's insane. 
Why yeah. do you think we haven't heard of it? Gee, I wonder because why. <laughs> maybe most of those people are not white. Yeah, they're, they're not white. They're, they're, yeah. it's, it happened in India and yeah. America doesn't care. Yeah. Um, well, I'm so glad this is out. It is in my queue. I saw it. I thought it was about the railway workers who were mostly Asian. Oh, right. In the United States. That's what I assumed it was about. But this is even more fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. Beth. You're welcome. All right. So just to recap, that is a podcast called The Opportunist. Wherever you get your podcast, it's a true crime goodie. And The Railway Men, a story about a tragedy in the Indian city of Bhopal. It's called The Railway Men, and it's on Netflix. And no, that's the end. <laughs> All right. You know what? I'm a grown up and I can, can handle, handle this. it. Yeah. So that's the end of the show. But in the meantime, Beth, where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. You can also support us by supporting our sponsors or by giving us a five star review. Five stars only, only please. <laughs> also, don't forget to subscribe. That's right. Now, listen up close. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. This is it. <laughs> oh boy. Rio Porcuncula. 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 Good job. Now known as. I'm trying to sound really professional and I'm pursing <laughs> my lips and I have a lip cramp. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Several simmeral, simmeral. I haven't, I have been sleeping like a doo-doo diarrhea cucka. Um, And Mm. I'm just really delirious and uh, tired. So forgive me in advance. (laughs) Okay. Uh, (laughs) You are forgiven. That was a really nervous laugh. That's the kind of laugh my mom. Yeah, I'm like, (laughs) oh, what's going to happen? uh, (laughs) This is Thanksgiving, Wendy. Please don't ruin it. (laughs) Hey, hey, Wendy, please don't ruin Thanksgiving. Okay, thanks. Okay, thank sure you. thing, Mom. <laughs> really, Elmo? Do you know anything about racism? <laughs> it's-
it starts with the R and ends with the H-E-M, right? <laughs> yes, good job, Elmo. We're not journalists, investigators, Muppets, or psychologists. <laughs> well, I had three vaccinations and a filling replaced, so... Uh, Whoa! Yeah, not great. And that uh, you fucked around and found out. I fucked around and found out, yeah. Elmo is so sorry, but so happy that you're going to be healthy. Beth got it. Didn't she do good, Elmo? Oh, yes. Beth did really good. I don't know if Elmo's ever going to go away. Sorry. Oh, Michael has imaginary friends, too? Yeah, Elmo, isn't that weird? Oh, wow. This guy sounds like a crazy motherfucker. Elmo, sit down over there. And uh, let's move on. There is a plumber around town who drives around in a pink van, and it's called Stinky Pinky. And it's a <laughs> it's a plumbing company. Oh, and I'm like, that's cute. that sounds so inappropriate, but you but never like forget it. it. I mean, if I think, I'm like, oh, there's got to be a plumber. What about that Stinky Pinky one? What about one? that Stinky Pinky one? <laughs> Nailed it. Can you fix the link in my ceiling while you're here? Enjoy yourself. Eat a lot. Um, and I hope your pants don't fit afterwards. <laughs> that means it's good. Right? Right. I'm wearing yoga pants for, <laughs> until until the beginning of the year. Oh, and that's for fine. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Night, night. Time for bed. Bye. Bye. <laughs> a detective came and knocked on the door. And I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.